Welcome to the Red Tree Pod, a project aimed at understanding how grace clarifies our otherwise confusing lives and attempts at reading the scriptures. I'm Davis Johnson, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Chris Wachter and Laura Rhinus, as every other week, we walk through a few passages in the Bible from a cross-centered point of view, before answering a but-what-about question that seems to fly in the face of grace, but maybe doesn't. We're glad to have you with us. Well, another day, another opportunity to see God as he is, not as we've made him out to be. But before we open up the Bible together, Chris, Laura, how are we doing today? Well, you know, my whole household, uh, well, I guess just my kids, they all have COVID right now. So we're doing fine. Totally Congratulations. fine. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I'd like Lucky to thank recipient. the Academy. Um <laughs> Uh, yeah it's definitely not as bad as our first go um but yeah just i feel like it's different for all of the kids one is just it's like a head cold the other one is tacking up a storm and the other one is like stomach issues so it's very straightforward and easy to figure out that sounds super enjoyable and non-interruptive <laughs> yeah. at all. Yeah, no. Yep. Yep. And it's wonderful because my husband and I are supposed to get a trip by ourselves on Sunday. So it's just really great timing. Mm. Uh, our parents are you. very excited to be able to babysit COVID uh, germ buckets. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. You could probably COVID's make been... that an, an acronym, COVID germ buckets. Sure, <laughs> sure. Yeah, I would. I would like to. That would work. Hear that. I feel like yeah. last time you guys chose band names and I didn't get to. So maybe that could be my mm, band name. That's a good that's, band that's name. A really good name. Wow. Oh man. That wins the wins the day right there. Uh, Chris, yeah. anything more exciting happening at your house? Um no, not uh not really. Actually, we had a little bout of COVID earlier. Uh, my my oldest daughter did. So um yeah, it's been we are in, we are in September is a headache ridden. So I think of all the things I get when I don't get enough sleep, you know, when, when school starts more headaches, a little bit more irritability maybe. And, uh, but a lot of beautiful weather and a lot of, you know, beautiful things to, uh, just in life and, you know, the weather and, um, changes for work and stuff at church, I think, um, lots of beauty as well. So I'm, uh, I'm thankful for, thankful for that. I know Davis, you and I were talking a bit about plumbing, so I replumbed a um, the the water filling mechanism of the inside of a toilet that should should take I've done that before should take what I don't know a half hour or something if you have the if you have the part it was an all, all day project so that was not not a fun way to spend a Saturday I think Ooh. three trips to Home Depot there it is um, you know <laughs> they they literally sell like two of the same thing, but they're like coated by color or something, uh, for the same kind of toilet. And I, of course I bought the wrong one. So, uh, yeah, anyway, it was, um, a, a lesson in futility, I guess, or <laughs> I don't know what the word is, but plumbing is, uh, a, a, kind of a nightmare for me. Um, and you were saying you did too, right, Davis, you had some, some yeah, yeah, joys I, recently, I, but did, did that increase or decrease the irritability for Chris? I mean, you were mentioned earlier. Is that... Chris, your ability scale went up, up, 
Gotcha. And are we still riding? Are we right? Are we riding that high? Are we bringing that into the podcast? <laughs> Should we expect some irritable Bible interpretation? This is not. That'd be a good band up. name too. It would. It would. I'm You're down for that. Bible interpretation. Yeah. yeah I'm, we, thank, we, I'm thankful though that there's no plumbing in the Bible, or like copper, at least copper soldering and and uh, you know toilet filling mechanisms. So we're not gonna. How come across know. that today thank god i don't think so i don't yeah. think so but yeah we uh we had a similar a day off on a saturday in the fall it's just rare and so when it comes around it's like how can i ruin this how about a plumbing project and so i i got a sink in one of our bathrooms that's been backed up and so i thought well just you know you can just piecemeal it just find the problem by one by one looking for the backup and so started with the p trap and then moved on to another joint when that didn't work and you're just under your sink, I don't know what that is. That black goop that just fills up and makes this tiny little hole. So you, every time you do it, you're like, "Oh, I found it. This this is clearly not letting water through," and then <laughs> it gets all over you and all over everything. But then you put it back together. I ended up taking the entire piece apart, uh, one one part at a time, and then I'm here to report that the blockage is still the exact same as when I began said project on Saturday. So we're, we're feeling good. We're feeling irritable (laughs) about all things plumbing here as a team, red tree pod. That that sounds, uh, you can't, that sounds like it takes some skill to not even coach that. You can't coach it. That's just raw talent. How did nothing change at all? That's that's impressive. (laughs) I might've made it worse. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Do not quit your day job, man. That's I'm glad beautiful. we can laugh about it now on this side of it, but this uh, is good, even though it's still blocked up. That's fine. Uh, we're going to be talking today about plumbing in the button. No, we're going to be <laughs> no. hanging out in Exodus three uh, in the old Testament. And we're going to be uh, also looking at Psalm eight in the old Testament before we turn back into second Corinthians. Uh, now we're in chapter eight verses one to 15. And then our, but what about passage for today is the narrow door. Now, there's a lot of talk about narrow door. We even had some confusion in trying to plan this out, uh, but we're going to look specifically at Luke 13 and Luke's rendition of the narrow door and maybe borrow from Matthew if we need to. But to begin, we have Exodus 3 and the calling of Moses. So we're only a few chapters into the story. Exodus actually begins with the birth and adoption of Moses. Uh, and then a couple chapters later, we find him as an adult man uh, with his family wandering a little bit in the wilderness before God calls him here in chapter three with a bush that is on fire, but notably not being consumed. And so just as a as a piece of background information, that's that's intriguing because fire itself in the <laughs> Old Testament is something that usually consumes. It's kind of its one job. Uh, but that being a, a representation, a similar a picture of judgment and how God does not tolerate mm. impurity, but actually judges and consumes that which would tarnish his holiness and his purity. So it's just intriguing that here at Moses's calling, we have this picture of fiery judgment and yet an invitation to come closer. Uh, and so, yeah, what, what do we what do you guys want to talk about here in Exodus three? There's a there's a lot to see and say. Uh, well, I just, you know, you have this episode where this bush is burning, but not burning. And um, then, you know, God and Moses kind of have a back and forth. And then following that, a few cha- chapters later, you have this score of people um, being saved, you know, being brought out in salvation um, from slavery. 
Um, and I just think, you know, the Exodus is kind of all over the biblical text. It's, it's, I feel like it's probably one of the strongest imagery themes that we see running throughout the whole text. Um, but I feel like we kind of get this burning bush um, moment in Acts as well, post-cross. Um, Jesus has died and resurrected. And then you have these flames that come down um, on the apostles and uh, they're on their heads, but they're not being burned. Um, and then you have uh, Peter giving this speech and even with like, you know, um, Moses on the mountain was talking to God and he's like, well, who am I to do this? And then you have people listening to Peter and, and all of the languages being spoken or heard. Um, and they're like, who are these guys? And then following this um, in Acts, it says that 3000 people were saved. So you have this huge score of people being mm -hmm. saved um, following this like burning, not burning moment. Um, and it's just kind of cool to see that theme play out um, and see it kind of fulfilled in Jesus and, and his life-saving um, burning, I guess. That's that's really good. Yeah, I, it's interesting you thought of Pentecost. I, I thought of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So kind of also thought of places where people are not consumed. So where fire is kind of around them or, you know, kind of encompassing or above them again in Pentecost's case, but like, um, and how it, with the bush as well, it's not, I think it's, uh, it's not being consumed or not dying. You know, I think um, in scripture, when even trees and wood comes up often, it's an illusion linguistically or symbolically to the cross. And so I think the cross is the place where non-consumption by God is possible. You know, so the Bible says he's an all-consuming fire. And yet um, for those of us in Christ, we're safe, uh, we're protected. And um and actually, Jesus had quotes this passage or part of it uh, once in his ministry when he's challenged about the resurrection. I believe it's when he's talking to the Sadducees about it. And he uh, uses this passage, the part where God says, I am the father of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And Jesus says, basically, the resurrection must be true because he says, I am the father of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, not I was when they were still alive. Uh, because at this point in the story, those three patriarchs have since passed away and died. So the fact that he says, I am, must mean that they're actually alive in, in heaven with him. And so of all the places to, to kind of go to support the resurrection, this is a very interesting place. But I think the fact that you do see a burning bush and not being consumed, there's a bit of a nod to the resurrection hope there as well. At the cross, like we said before, is kind of, it's all kind of coming together. Hope that uh, death will be overcome. Hope that approachability you know, to God will be kind of surmounted as well, which is maybe another theme going on here. But Davis, how about you? Anything else? Yeah. I mean, again, the passage is, is dense. There's so much to say and, and to, to draw out. I love how in verse seven, you're kind of given this mini gospel in part where God is saying, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the land of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And we know that to be the promised land. And, and like Laura was pointing out, the the Exodus, this is this is what God is ultimately describing. That is, he's seen what's happening with his people, that they're miserable as they suffer under a tyrant slave driver. 
And God's not okay with that. But he also knows that the solution to that is not them pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, but a divine rescue program. And he's going to do that. Uh, but what's left out here is how he's going to do that. And that uh, not only that, but what's going to happen after, because those of us who would have the full story of seeing, like even after this, the 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 readers are going to come into contact with the fact that it, Egypt was a big deal problem, but it wasn't the ultimate problem. And this cycle is going to kind of repeat, but you're going to have a picture of a people who are suffering, miserable, under a tyrant-like slave driver that's driving them to and towards destruction. But God's not cool with that. He wants to rescue, he wants to intervene, and he wants to deliver his people from the ultimate enemy, like we talked about last episode, which is sin that leads to death. And yet it's going to result in, I think it's verse 12, talking about worshiping God on a mountain, which uh, here in Exodus 3, we have uh, a picture of where they're going to be when they're worshiping God at Sinai. But the story of the Bible is a story ultimately of worshiping God on two mountains. One is called Sinai and one is called Zion. Uh, it's a spiritual mountain that looks a lot like where Jesus actually died and rose again uh, for our sins to ultimately kill that that tyrant slave driver that led us to misery and suffering. And so you have this desire, you have this longing of this passage to drive you forward and 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 bring us to our ultimate rescue, uh, which is going to happen by God's extended arm through his son, Jesus, that might lead to a, a longer lasting form of worship that we see uh, in the New Testament, which is eternity with him. So again, just some shorthand ways of God, God's almost laying out like a blueprint of the gospel here. And it looks like the presence of grace uh, via judgment that doesn't consume. So Moses is, is drawing near to this flame that isn't burning him up, even though it should. And yet God is going to dial up the volume of what this rescue program looks like, which is, it's quite remarkable. And it actually speaks directly into our lives, which mm. also allows us to turn the page here to Psalm eight. Uh, I'm just going to read this because there's, it's such a short Psalm and like Exodus three, there's a lot to a lot to see. So he begins, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens through the praise of children and infants. You have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, before I uh, let you guys chime in here, I, I want to take uh, one of my favorite pieces of this psalm, and that is that whenever the New Testament quotes something directly, it's it's instructive. It's teaching you how to go back and read something like this. And the author of Hebrews actually quotes this verbatim. And uh, he, he, but he he doesn't just say like, "Hey, David says this in the Psalms." He just says, "You know, somewhere someone says this," and then he reads a part of Psalm eight. <laughs> And, and then he goes on to basically say, just so you know, that's that's actually about Jesus. That's about the Messiah. It's actually not about you. And so when you and I read this, it's it's really easy to be like, okay, okay so God, God notices me in the midst of a, a, a world that 
and a universe even that's so big and so majestic, he takes note of me. And that's that's not a wrong conclusion to come to. But before we come to that conclusion, the Bible itself is teaching us to go, hey, just so you know, this is actually written about Jesus and the majestic reality of his name and how it will be perceived as majestic one day in all the earth and is being perceived as such by those who know him intimately. Mm-hmm. So wherever we see an opportunity to just go, how do you, how do you read this old ancient book? Uh, one of the best ways is just see how do New Testament authors read the Old Testament? How do they quote it and how are they talking about it? And that author of Hebrews seems to be pretty uninterested in the context and the very timing that this was being written and instead drawing out a much bigger context, which is to say, what is God doing in the, in the, in the grand story of the Bible and how does it all gravitate like planets around a sun towards the person of Jesus and his work in the gospel, which is just mighty. It's just really powerful to draw that out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'll go ahead, Laura, you first. I was just going to say like Hebrews always kind of blows my mind when it comes to how it unpacks the old Testament. And I think that was, um, as I was kind of coming to understand how Jesus is present everywhere. Um, Hebrew was, was such a key to understanding that because it really does like show you how to take passages like these and just kind of unpack them at the foot of the cross. Um, and to kind of just, I, I feel like that is how you tie the whole Bible together as one story is just by being able to like thread the story of the cross and the gospel through the whole thing. I really appreciate the author of Hebrews. Whoever, whoever you be. are, yes, <laughs> wherever you are, <laughs> you might be listening. Oh, wait, no, probably not. But, um, the, so yeah, one thing I'd say too about the psalm I like that, um, because I think that specific grace you guys are talking about, who is a person, who is Christ, is sometimes in text like this kind of preceded or accompanied by a, a more of a general statement of grace that um, we see in different ways and maybe it's more thematic or maybe more circumstantial or something. And I think in this passage, you see this great kind of um, almost just one of the deeper existential questions you get in the Psalms, which is, uh, who are we that you're mindful of us? Like who, you know, as we honestly look at ourselves in comparison to to the, the Rocky Mountains and as we stand on an ocean shore and stare into it or look at the stars at night and, and try to count them, like who are we that God cares for us and, and is mindful of us? And um, this phrase that comes to mind for me when I read this psalm is uh, being small but loved is a grace thing. And even to this question of why this is the case, why are we thought of by God and cared for him, if, as you notice in the psalm, it's not answered. And I think that's because you can't really answer the question of why you love somebody. You know, um, if if someone asked me why I love my wife, Aletha, I, I would just say, because I just do. Like, there's not, she didn't do anything, you know, and I didn't really do anything sort uh, to earn. There are things she likes about me and, and I like about her, of course, but um, I just do. And I think, so to this question, this existential question, I think that the non-response is almost a question of love because God is not saying, I'm mindful of you because you've done all this stuff for me. I'm mindful of you because you impress me. I'm mindful of you because you've ascended and climbed a mountain for me, or you've matched my creative power in making the sun and moon like I did. It just, it's, it's a non-answer, you know, and, it, and there's a lot of love and beauty in that, that, um, 
on that level is, you know, even though there's some genericness to it and generalness, we we see that from there, uh, the psalm becomes not about us. It becomes about a God who descends, condescends, become le- becomes lower than angels even for a time so that he could actually take our place on a cross and die for us. And that's where the the love, the, the kind of the non-answer of divine love takes shape in human form and speaks our language and um, writes all wrongs, you know, and 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 brings us home ultimately. That's beautiful. That that doesn't sound like irritable, Chris. You don't sound irritable anymore. I was very well. There's there's that. no plumbing in this passage. So I see. Why, but, I yeah. see. Out of the plumbing of infants. No. Right. Uh, that that is the last thing I'll say about this this psalm. It is it is verse two. It says through the praise of children and infants. Okay, don't, don't miss that. Through the praise of children and infants. You, God, have established a stronghold against your enemies. This is crazy. I, to me, like when I read this verse, I I do have this picture of like the front lines of a war where you have, you know, you're digging the trenches and you're putting your best and maybe more strategic people out there to, or at least guiding them to, you know, take down the enemy front lines. And God's front lines consist of small infants who are praising him, that which is weak and tiny, praising the one who's ultimately doing this rescuing work. So even to just go back to the the verse that bookends both the beginning and end of the psalm, it's Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So another way to just phrase that is, is how is God's name being made majestic in the story? Well, ultimately, it actually does look like verse two, that he takes those small, insignificant things. He takes those who are willing to become small, right? Like our tendency is to try and make ourselves bigger than we are and try to boast about what we've been able to do. But to become small like children, like Jesus says, this this is where faith is found. This is where freedom is found. And this is where ultimately God's name can become majestic and we can forget about ourselves, which is kind of the MO of the gospel. And the more that that happens, the more it looks like... Uh, deep rest, the more it looks like joy. Joy ultimately is coming into contact with God and forgetting about yourself. This is why anytime you go on an amazing hike and see the heavens and the stars and something bigger than you, you're not sitting there going, man, you guys should see the garden I made at home this summer. Like like this, (laughs) I did something so impressive here. No, it's like you're getting wrapped up into something that's worthy of praise and you're becoming small like a child, which is where God would have you be. And so the greatest weapon in your faith is to become like a child and to praise the one who is majestic and who is worthy of said praise. On the note of praise, no, that's actually not this, the note that I would transition to Second Corinthians. <laughs> it doesn't actually flow very well. So transition of the day would take us to Second Corinthians 8, 1 to 15. We have Paul raising money for another church. Have you guys ever had to raise money for the church? It seems like if you work in ministry, this is something that you can relate to. I know we can. Uh, and so he's he's going around, he's talking about these Macedonian mm-hmm. churches, and he's saying in the midst of very severe trials, here's the equation for generosity. He says, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty. Okay, so overflowing joy plus extreme poverty equals rich generosity kind of upside down when you think about it, but then he goes on, for I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service of the Lord's people, and they exceeded our expectations. And he continues to describe their giving and then ties it back 
ties it back to God and his giving. So what stands out to you guys about 2 Corinthians 8? Well, I feel like this is kind of Psalm 8 personified, right? Um, when he's talking about um, how the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor. I mean, this is this is Psalm 8, though he, you know, he was lowered um, from his richness to this level of poorness for our sake. Um, I think it's just really important when it comes to passages like this in Psalm 8, where you're just kind of keeping in mind the directionality of God's love and how it's always coming down. Um, you see that again and again and again. Um, but I feel like this is yeah, like I said, Psalm 8 personified, where this is this picture of God coming down to our level, um, and I mean, even lower, right, to the grave in order to save us. Um, and then, you know, Paul calling to us to to have that response kind of be an outpouring um, of how we treat each other, but first, because God treated us like that, um, not because we just need to be good enough in order to love each other just this way. Um, you know, he even goes out of his way to say, like, I say this not as a command, um, but instead as an outpouring of the love that was, you know, shot down from heaven um, to us in order to save us. Right. Yes. I, you know, I think this passage is one of the clearer places as well, where we, you know, I know in the uh, last season, Davis, we talked about this in the podcast too. The this idea of a gospel informed ethic. So uh, the, the idea. So at verse nine, where it says, "For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich." Um, that's cruciform imagery, right? He's not talking generically about something he did physically in his earthly ministry. There, he's talking about when he died on a cross for our sins. So specifically, Paul is, is drawing these Christians back to what's been done for them and how the gospel then becomes our motivation and our encouragement to this, our empowerment. And in this, then I think they cease to, these kind of things cease to become law because there's no condition attached to it. And they aren't left, these things aren't left to us to manufacture ourselves. Almost like Paul is saying, you know, the, the, this very thing I'm asking of you at the highest level has already been done for you. And this person even lives inside you and he's the producer of these good works. So believe that and go and freely live your life in community with other Christians and love them uh, in, in a way that you first been, first been loved. And so I, I think the reason why that's so important then is because ethics um, and this, so this phrase I think of sometimes, ethics on islands become law. So just an ethic itself on an island uh, without any kind of gospel surrounding it uh, or speaking into it or serving as the foundation for it, uh, maybe not instantly or right away, but eventually they always become law because they just become something for us to do. They become something that's uh, that we can never measure up to perfectly. There's always more of it to do and we start to measure ourselves by it rather than seeing the gospel in it. Um, and so what I, again, that's just what Paul does here is something I think we should do for every single ethical statement in all the New Testament. Even if Paul's not explicitly tying it to the gospel, it's implicit and we we need to read it in. What Paul is doing here, we must do with other passages. Uh, to, to not do that, I think, is to miss 
the greater flow of how the Bible is moving from law to grace, how, how it's moving from us to Jesus and then Jesus living inside of us and bearing fruit by the spirit within us. And it's to maybe start to wither away on an island with just a few ethics in our hand without, but missing the love letters of Jesus and, and missing the, the great gospel that, that Paul wants to be our motivation for these things. I really love that, man. I think of uh, Ephesians 4, 32, I think it is when he says, forgive one another. And he's talking to the church and he's like, Hey, this, this is really good. It's a good idea to forgive one another, but he doesn't just say period. Like you should just do that. He says, forgive one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. That's the right. motivation. This is the thing that fuels that. And so, yeah, like you're saying, if it's, if it's not explicit, like if we're given instruction in the new Testament, which the New Testament is not shy about doing. Instruction is a good thing, but it never connects itself to an Old Testament law. It never connects instruction to saying like, this is like the Old Testament law. This is like an old covenant where you need to do this in order to live so that God's still pleased with you, so that God still blesses you. No, not at all. Instead, it, it says, do, do you see how this has been done for you? Like Laura was talking about directionally, you need to understand this. And if you're having a hard time forgiving somebody, which newsflash, uh, every single one of us does. Uh, and the the response to the difficulty of that is not try harder to forgive this person. Instead, it's this invitation to meditate on the fact that you have been forgiven a lifetime of debts that you cannot pay. Consider that, let it melt your heart and then forgiveness is, it's going to come, but it it's a grace. I mean, that's, that's the language of this passage. It even says, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. It's a gift from God to want to even give your monies, which, which is, uh, I think, a good invitation to a lot of Gen Zers. I think this is becoming a very uh, Gen Z. You guys saw us millennials get saddled in debt, and now we're all still trapped in it. And so uh, you're pursuing Dave Ramsey's road to financial freedom and trying to make all that paper to rescue yourselves from the sadness that we are all experiencing. <laughs> Uh, and that's fair. You, you do that. Uh, but at the same time, don't that, don't, don't let that slow you down in the grace of generosity. Uh, this is something we talk about with couples in premarital all the time, excel in this, the, the grace of giving early, learn how to, to give away your money, even when you don't have much, because it does not get easier. Uh, and this is practical too, because the old Testament, when it comes to generosity does say, there, there's a tithe. It's 10%. This is what you give back to the temple. And it's, it's, it's like training wheels. God is teaching you to not let money have its talons around your heart. Um, I think C.S. Lewis called it dragon heart, the way greed and jealousy, just like, oh, it's just the sickness that all of us have. And so, yeah, the tithe in the Old Testament was this invitation from God to, to let those talons let go of us a little bit more. But that 10% tithe is not continued in the new covenant. Instead, we're given a picture, like, like Laura was saying, of 100% of generosity. We're given a picture of God becoming impoverished, God giving all that he is, 100% of all that he is and was, was given for you in love. That's the picture of generosity that we now have. And so practically, when it comes to your number, this is a question I get asked as a pastor, what, what should I give? It's like, well, there. It's not like a sleep number. There isn't a number that you you have and I have that we uh, that 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 defines us. Instead, we're given a picture of ten percent training wheels, 
and the gospel is 100%. So just a good rule of thumb would be like, yeah, probably somewhere in the middle there between 10 and 100% is is good for your heart. And hopefully as the gospel takes over more and more, that number gets to go up. Like we saw with this, the church of, uh, given the, given the Macedonian churches here in second Corinthians eight, that out of extreme poverty and overwhelming joy, rich generosity was the result. Speaking of rich generosity, no, it's the transitions are off today. I think it's Chris's irritability. I feel, I feel like I'm disappointing him. That's fair. That's fair. Actually. (laughs) (laughs) There it is. We see it. We see that irritability. I see that irritability. Uh, We're going to hang out and talk about the narrow door. This is our, but what about passage for today? And again, this is where we really just want to look at a trickier passage. Like we, we like to underline highlight circle grace a lot because we think the Bible is teaching us to do that. But there are passages that seem to fly in the face of grace. And so when they come up, the solution is to not close your Bible and go, well, I'm just going to sit on my hands or go do something else. It's to slow down and and read it and go, what, well, what is this actually saying? And and one of those is this passage on the narrow door. And it's it's sparked by somebody asking Jesus, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And Jesus' response is to make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. And I, I want to talk about this one because I think it's something that comes up almost in, in shorthand. Uh, I often hear it described as the straight and narrow, which also kind of includes Jesus's language in the Sermon on the Mount, where he talks about a narrow gate and uh, the, the the way is constricted that leads to life. And usually when I hear that phrase uh, in shorthand, especially from uncles uh, and stuff growing up, it was always about living a certain way, like to, to live the straight and narrow means to walk the higher moral ground and that that's what's expected ultimately of Christians. And ultimately even to be a Christian means to walk the straight and narrow. Uh, but I just want to bring that question onto this passage and just ask, is, is that what Jesus is saying as he's describing a narrow door? What are your guys' thoughts on the narrow door? Well, I think, um, with passages like this where, you know, you read them first through and it's a little like, I'm not quite sure where that's going with that. Um, what I like to do is kind of pick the imagery that it's talking about and see where else it falls in the Bible. Um, and in this text, we have a lot of door imagery. Um, and so I feel like there is that way to look at this text and be like, yes, the straight and narrow door is what I have to do. Um, But really, when you go back and look at the biblical text, um, every time it's talking about a door um, that we have to get through or that we are through or that we're near, um, it's a lot of the times it's talking about kind of how God has saved us. Um, You know, you have Exodus where they had to go through the door that was painted with the blood of the sacrificial lamb that protected them from judgment that was being um, brought on to Egypt um, and how that the door was literally what saved them. Um, and then you jump forward to 
um, John 10, where Jesus is saying, like, I am the door. I am the thing that that you go through in order to be saved. Um, and even then he's talking about like how it's protecting you from the thieves and all of that. Um, and so I feel like when it's talking about this narrow door, like we, we err with Jesus's words on this side, right? Like Jesus is the door, Jesus and his death and resurrection is, is the one and only narrow piece of salvific land that we can cross. Mm -hmm. Um, in order to be saved. Um, and I love like, even this kind of ties right into revelation when during, um, in one of the letters to the churches, I don't remember which one, but it's in revelation three. Um, and Jesus is saying, he's like, I am knocking now I am knocking on the door and I want to come in and eat with you. Um, and I, feel like that's, you know, that's the better knocking, right. Then that we can do and just be like, Hey, let me in. Um, I feel like J Jesus is showing like, he's the better knocker. Um, that's a weird phrase. <laughs> Maybe that will be my band name, <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, and just thinking about in terms of that, like with my husband, like what's the better love story? Is it me, you know, knocking on our bedroom door and being like, let me in. Like, I'm a, I'm an okay wife, right? Like, did I do enough for you to open the door? Or is it my husband charging in the door to me? Um, and I feel like the answer is pretty clear. Like the, him rushing to me is, is the better love story. And again, it's directionality, right? Like, are we loving enough to get to God or is it God just coming down to us and to meet us where we're at? And, you know, I feel like even with the Psalm, when it's talking about the infants and children and the praise, like that's us, like we we're we're just babbling, but he's coming to us and he's doing this like unexpected way of saving. Right. Does that make yeah. sense to you guys? Well, it totally does. And I don't, I don't think it's an accident that this language of door or gate or any of these things is, is quoted by Jesus himself. Like you're saying, I'm like, I, I am this. And contra what we might hear in the 21st century about, you know, there's many ways up the same mountain, you know, choose your religion, choose your own adventure. Uh, Jesus is very much saying that there's not, there's, there's a narrow door. There's, there's one way in. Uh, but the surprise of this is that he is that way in. And even to quote him in, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he's talking about this narrowness, he's, he says the, the way is constricted that leads to life. And uh, what's, what's fascinating about that is, you know, he calls himself the way elsewhere. And so just mm -hmm. to think about like the way to life is he himself, life itself, right? The author of life itself being constricted, being constrained of his last dying breath on a cross mm -hmm. so that all who would look to him would be given life. This is a narrow door. This is something that I think we are being invited to see that's the only that's the only way into eternity according to god there isn't many multiple ways there's, there's a single narrow door and it looks like the author of life being constricted on a roman cross two thousand years ago and flipping your world upside down ever since yeah i i think for me too when i see narrow uh along those lines um it, it narrow i think you said davis it's a surprise right the, the narrow door is not the obvious way in and i think uh, human beings have been trying to take the obvious way to God forever, you know, ever since Eve sunk her teeth into that fruit, you know, thousands of years ago, which is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And 
the 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 fruit of uh, I'll, I'll show you I'm enough, God. I'm enough on my own, and th then you'll love me. Uh, essentially, that's what it was. Um, I think the narrow, yeah, the narrow door, the narrow path is the side door. It's it's the hatch to the basement. It's the it's the cracked window almost. It's not the obvious front door, and um, and so I think that's just that's a really important thing here. There's a lot going on in this parable, um, but you know the fact that Jesus says that I want you to take the side door. I want you to, to, to take the surprise and, you know, the, the offer of grace basically from the side of the house. Um, and don't, don't follow people. Don't, don't follow like the way of the crowds. Uh, don't be people pleasers, you know, don't try to earn your way in. I think um, is another message and angle on this, even bigger doors uh, take, you know, more human effort to make rather than narrow doors. And so I think they're in whatever in scripture, I see twos pairs or twos, I think of, of the two covenants of scripture. And so um, there might be an element of that here going on as well, where Jesus is saying, uh, take the path that took much less human effort. Uh, in fact, the path that was paved completely by God's hands themselves and, and enter that way um, while there's still time, uh, because eventually there won't be. Uh, God's patience will eventually run out. Judgment needs to come. Evil needs to be finally expunged. And so that's that kind of ultimate warning is, uh, take the path, take the door, like Laura was saying, the path of Christ, the door of Christ. It's, it's the only way to life. Thank you for joining us. You can find us online at redtreegrace.com. If you like what you've heard, please do drop us a rating or leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.